0: Well, kids, you guys, um, uh, you guys get to stay in big church today, and so I'm looking forward to having you guys with us today. Today, uh, young people, or kids, we're going to have three Bible stories. We're going to go to the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at three different Bible stories in one sermon. You guys ready for that? How about you adults? You guys ready for that? Kickoff's not until 325, so we're good, man. Three Bible stories, three hours, we're good. All right, here we go. (laughs) Jude. The book of Jude, right before Revelation, today's text, verse 11. Uh, Winston Churchill is quoted as saying, having said, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We know that is true from our own life, where we have failed to learn from mistakes from the past. We find ourselves like having Groundhog Day all over again, and we find ourselves going down a wrong path over and over and over again. Well, Jude does the same thing for us here in his epistle. As we've seen this fall, we've already seen his purpose for writing this uh, short letter given to us in verse 3, where he said, I'm writing this to urge believers, to urge you, you who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you who are following Jesus Christ, to, ur- to contend earnestly for the faith, to contend earnestly or vigorously, uh, with great effort, uh, consistently, persistently, He says, I want you to contend for the faith, and we know that the faith is the truth of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, recorded for us in Scripture, right? So the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ, recorded for us in Scripture, contend for that truth, earnestly contend for that truth, and the reason why this letter and this message is so important is given to us in verse 4, and we've seen that already. Where Jude says that there are ungodly people who have come in among you secretly. They have come in. They have crept in. They've wormed their way into your congregation. And they have done three things. Or they're attempting to do three things. They deceive, they're attempting to deceive God's people. We see that in verse 4. They're, they distort the grace of God. They turn it into licentiousness. That you can just live an immoral lifestyle and it doesn't matter what you do. God's grace is sufficient. And God's grace is sufficient. But God's grace is to sanctify our lives, not to just give us a, a, a get out of jail card free, get out of jail free card and, and allow us to just persist in unrepentant, ongoing sin. That's not the grace of God. Um, and then, verse, uh, the, third, uh, re- the third reason is that they not only distort God's grace, but they deny Jesus Christ as our only Lord and Master. And so that is the reason why Jude was led by the Holy Spirit to write this epistle. And in verses 5 through 10 that we've looked at over the past couple Sundays, Jude has addressed this threat. Verses 5 through 7, he looked to the past. He used three examples that that he uh, cited to establish the urgency for us to hear uh, this message that he is uh, giving to us. In verses 8 through 10, he looked at their present circumstance. He says, not only are the false teachers that have come in among you, leading you astray from the grace of God, like these in the past, but this is what they're doing right now. And then in verse 10, he also looks ahead to the future when he spoke of their, uh, the certainty and the inescapability of God's judgment. In fact, that whole idea of the inescapability and the certainty of God's judgment runs through this short epistle. Verse 6. Jude spoke about the judgment of the great day. Verse 10, he spoke about the certainty of um, those who have uh, abandoned him of being destroyed. Verse 12, we're going to see next week, Lord willing, that he has reserved the blackest darkness for those who have rejected him. Verses 14 and 15, we'll see in a couple weeks that God has uh, set a day in when he, uh, the Lord Jesus and his angels will come to judge all the ungodly. Verse 23 holds out the hope, the promise of being rescued from judgment. And so when we come to verses 11 through 16, Jude is not content, not finished with the false teachers and the threat of false teaching, the danger of apostasy or the danger of turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so concerned is jude for the health and the well-being of his church these believers that he's writing to that he launches one more uh, apologetic or one more defense attack against these who are coming in to lead god's people astray and like he did in verses 5 through 10 jude uses the same kind of format verse 11 he's going to look back verses 12 and 13 he's going to describe their present effect verses 14 and 15 and 16, he's going to look to the future and what the outcome of these false teachers is. And so we're going to look today at verse 11. Our, we're going to read God's word. And as I've been doing uh, through this series, I've been reading from a different version. This morning I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Version of the Holman Christian Bible. And so I'm going to be reading these 25 verses here. Listen as the word of God is being read. I believe this, the verses are on the screen behind You can read along verse one jude a slave of jesus christ and a brother of james to those who are called loved by god the father and kept by jesus christ may mercy peace and grace be multiplied to you dear friends although i was eager to write to you about the salvation we share i found it necessary to write and exhort you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They're ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our master, our only master and Lord. Now I want to remind you, though you know all these things, the Lord first saved the people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe and he has kept with eternal chains and darkness for the judgment of the great day the angels who did not keep their own position but deserted their proper dwelling in the same way sodom and gomorrah and the cities around them committing committed sexual immorality practiced and practiced perversions just as angels did and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire nevertheless these dreamers, likewise, defile their flesh, reject authority, blaspheme glorious ones. Yet Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about uh, Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they don't understand. What they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. Woe to them. This is our text this morning, verse Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have traveled the way of Cain, have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. We're going to look at those three three examples here in a moment. These are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feast. They feast with you, nurturing only themselves without fear. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled out by the roots. Wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. Wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. And Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied about them. Look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict them all of their ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers. Now pay attention to that because we're going to see that idea later on when we get to Korah's rebellion. These people are discontented grumblers walking according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words flattering people for their own advantage. But you dear friends this is what he's writing to God's people you dear friends remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ they told you in the end time, there will be scoffers walking according to their own godly desires. These people create divisions and are unbelievers, not having the Spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, expecting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire have mercy on others but with fear hating even the garment defiled by their flesh now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy to our only God And our our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority uh, before all time, now and forever. Amen. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Our text, verse 11 this morning, is what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to have three examples that are from the past that are prevalent for the present, for today. They're not just historical lessons that we're going to see. God is taking us back, helping us to learn from the past so that we can change the future. That we don't make the same mistakes today. And so verse 11 begins with a woe. Woe to them. Now we in Texas, we hear the word woe and we may think of a horse like, Whoa, Nellie. I'm getting there. I think, maybe, you guys, <laughs> is it close? Okay, thank you, brother. Uh, <clears throat> the idea there of woe is, is stop, you know, pull back up on the reins and, 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 and come to a quick and abrupt stop. And the woe of verse 11 is designed to stop us in our tracks. But that word is much more significant than just stopping it's a strong word. It's used 46 times in the New Testament, woe. And it describes a state of intense horror and distress. It's the it's idea of suffering greatly or intensely. Literally, we could say this. Verse 11 begins, how disastrous it will be for them on that day. That's what verse 11 is saying. How disastrous it will be for them on that day. Those who reject the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Those who seek to turn God's people away from the Lord Jesus Christ. How disastrous it will be for them on that day. The them uh, takes us back to the ungodly people that we've looked at in verse 4 that I've already reminded you of. Those who come in among you seeking to deceive God's people and distort God's grace and deny Jesus Christ. And many of these false teachers uh, find themselves being prosperous and many times they present themselves or we watch them, we look at them and we become envious of them and we say, well man, maybe what they have is what I need and, and we begin, we're enticed by that. That's the warning that God is giving to us. Woe to them. They, they may be prosperous now. They may have all the markings of success and advancement, but woe to them. It'll be a day of disaster unless they too repent and turn to Jesus Christ. I think of Costi Hinn, uh, the grandson of televangelist and faith healer Benny Hinn, who described his life in the prosperity gospel movement. He tells in his testimony of how, as a 19 year old young man living in the lap of luxury, attending D- Dallas Baptist University on a baseball scholarship. And it was there that God used the word of God from the baseball coach to crack hope in the heart of Costi Hinn. And he realized the error of his grandfather. And he turned to Jesus Christ and today is faithfully serving the Lord Jesus Christ and preaching the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Although living in the lap of luxury, the Bible says it will be a day of disaster for them. A day of judgment. Woe to them. And Jude gives to us the reasons why that day would be a disastrous day, a day of horror by taking us back, giving to us three examples from the Old Testament. He said, Jude in essence is saying this, that that these false teachers who are attempting to lead you astray from your simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ are doing the very same things that people have done in the past. He says that they have gone the way of Cain. They have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit. And they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So what are these events that Jude references? What is their significance? Why does he mention them here? Is there any relevance from these three events of the past to today? I'm going to try to answer these questions here this morning. And so let's begin with the first error. That that, Let's read verse 11 again and then we'll take a look at this verse here. Verse 11, woe to them. It'll be a day of disaster for them. Why? Because they have taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. What are the three errors? What are the three uh, ways that, 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 that these people have have, astray, have turned astray? Number one, the way of Cain is a pathway to death. The way of Cain is a pathway to death. The way of Cain is recorded for us in in the book of Genesis and so if you have your Bibles turn with me back to the book of Genesis Genesis chapter 4 and I want us to, to look at the story of Cain so very first book of the Bible right so if you get to the table of contents you've gone too far go towards the back right so uh, the book of Genesis Genesis chapter 4 and I want to just read the first eight verses there just to help us understand what Cain is saying to us here in Jude verse eleven. Verse uh, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. You remember um, the curse and the promise in Genesis chapter 3? You'll have a, a descendant, a seed, who will be the one who will bruise the serpent's head. God is, with the help of God, I've given birth to a man. Maybe this is the Savior. That was the hope, the expectation of Eve. Later she gave birth to a brother Abel, to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked on with favor, looked with favor on Abel and said, and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do, not do, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him right the, the way of Cain is the is the way the pathway of death the Bible tells us what happened Cain offered a sacrifice from the produce of the land Abel offered a, a, a sacrifice of an animal one brought a grain offering the other brought a blood offering one was rejected one the other was accepted what made the difference and I think Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis helps us begin to understand by directing us to the significance of verses three and four. Listen to what Kent Hughes wrote. Why was Abel's offering accepted while Cain's was not? And why did Cain become so angry? The answer lies in the text of verses three and four because whereas Cain only brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, Abel brought the best of the flock, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, verse four. Cain evidently was indifferent about his offering, but Abel was careful about it. The rabbinic commentators note that the fat and firstborn mean that Abel gave God the first pick, or gave God the pick of the flock. It's not so much that one brought a grain offering, the other brought an animal sacrifice because both were required by the law. It had to do with how they brought them. The description of Abel's offering is elaborate stressing that when Abel went out to that Abel went out of his way to please the Lord he brought the fattest of the firstlings of his flock Cain's offering however is simply mentioned he brought an offering from the fruit of the ground one worshipper went out of his way to please the Lord the other went through the motions only doing what was required now listen to how the scriptures give commentary on Cain and Abel's offering. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. You hear what the word of God is saying? That by faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice. By Sacrifice by faith, Abel was approved as righteous. And I think these two words are the key difference between Cain and Abel's offering. The way of Cain is the way, or the two words are by faith, right? The way of Cain is opposite of faith. Instead of pleasing God by faith, the way of Cain is only pleasing self. Instead of honoring God by faith, the way of Cain dishonors God by choosing one's own way. Listen to what the word of God says about faith, the importance of faith. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is never what you can do. It is always by faith, In what Christ has already done we need to keep that in front of us Abel was righteous approved as righteous because he brought his offering by faith Romans chapter 14 verse 23 says everything that does not come from faith is sin Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 without faith it is impossible to please God Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the Christian life, our salvation, our ongoing walk with God, ultimately our our transport to heaven, all of it is by faith. It is a life of faith. The way of Cain is a superficial faith. The way of Cain is looking to get from God without ever surrendering to God. The way of Cain is an your faith, only doing what God requires. The way of Cain is a dead faith that cannot and does not produce fruit that is corresponding to repentance and faith. And the Apostle John in his epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, said that Cain brought to the, uh, belonged to the evil one because his actions were evil. And what the scripture says is that Cain did what comes naturally to a person who is evil on the inside. What was evil on the inside came out on the outside. And so this pathway of Cain, is the way of Cain rather, is a pathway to death. It is a life that lit, tries to relate to God and, and uh, serve God apart from faith. And Jude is warning the church to contend with for the faith do not go the way of Cain for it is the pathway of death he gives a second illustration and the second illustration there is the example of the error of Balaam the error of Balaam Uh, the error of Balaam is a a lifestyle of defilement it's a lifestyle of defilement Uh, turn with me back to the Old Testament book of Numbers we're gonna go from Genesis to Numbers Numbers chapter 22 Numbers chapter twenty two. We want to understand the story of Balaam. You guys remember, kids? You guys remember the story of Balaam and Balak? Anybody? There we go. We heard one kid. It's always the huff kids. Numbers, numbers twenty two. All right, here we go. In politics, in detective work, probably in every aspect of life. Right? They, They say what? Follow the. Follow the money. Right. Uh, Follow the money. Look for the one who seeks to gain the most from this and you'll probably find the person and the motive, right? And Jude says that these false teachers, these ungodly people, verse four, they have abandoned themselves to the error of Balaam for profit. Now I want to look at those two words. Abandoned or have taken the way of Balaam for profit. They abandoned, they've rushed for profit. It speaks of being marked By complete devotion to something. Our vernacular today might be this. He's all in. He's pushed all the chips into the center of the table. He's all in. I don't know what that means, but he's all in. The idea of this word where it says that these false teachers have abandoned themselves is that the idea of being poured out, every last drop being poured out I want you to keep that image in your mind because hopefully we'll have time at the end to make application, but the idea of being poured out. They abandoned themselves. They poured themselves out for Balaam's error. The error is the deception. Balaam's intention to mislead and deceive, purposely deceiving God's people. Balaam introduced error, deception, in order to mislead and bring a curse upon God's people. What's happening here in Numbers chapter 22 to 25? Having been delivered by God from their slavery in Egypt, the Israelites now found themselves wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief. In Numbers chapter 22 where they're at is that they're in a valley between, uh, next to the mountain of Moab. If you think of the Moabites, Ruth, you guys remember later on in biblical revelation, Ruth was the, uh, the great grand, or the grandmother of King David, would come from these people. The Moabites, their king was Balak. And Balak had heard of what God had done to the Egyptians, what God had done to the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17, and what he had done to the kings of Og and Bashan. And 22 verse 4. Bala calls the people together and says, uh, calls the elders together and he he projected a future of gloom. He says, these people that are out here, they're going to lick up everything as a beast licks up the grass. And so his plan was to call forth a soothsayer to put a curse on the nation of Israel. And so he sent for the very best. He sent for a guy named Balaam. Now Moab is just outside of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan River. Balaam is from Mesopotamia, Iraq. Right, so he's, this guy has a, you know, if, there, if you wanted someone to put a curse, if you wanted the best of the best of the cursed people, get Balaam. And so Balak sends an envoy across the desert saying, um, come and put a curse on God's people, I'll pay you handsomely. And verse 12, God gave Balaam... The message saying, don't go with them. You must not have put a curse on them because I have blessed them. Isn't that a wonderful promise? God says, you, you can't curse my people because I've blessed them. Remember what he promised Abraham? He says, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. God is true to his word. And so the envoy returned to Balak and, and said, well, he's not coming with us. And so Balaam or Balak sent back the envoy and he says, listen. You come now, I'll pay you this much. And so he ups the payment. In verse 20, Numbers chapter 22, God says to Balaam, go. But you must only do what I tell you to do. In verse 21, Balaam goes. Verse 22, the Lord is angry because the uh, the heart of Balaam is being revealed. He has no intention of doing what God wants to do. He's really in it for the money. And so 22 is that interesting story where Balaam's donkey starts misbehaving. First he stops, then he goes off and he gets off the path and he goes into the vineyard and then he just nails down and, and every time Balaam's beating the donkey and finally the third time, the donkey speaks. He says, why are you beating me? Have I ever done this before? There's something else going on. And so uh. uh eventually uh, Balaam uh, gets to uh, Balak in Moab and you know and Balak is frustrated by the delay what took you so long and, and eventually they get to putting get, Balaam gets to work to trying to put a curse on the people and so look down to chapter 23 verses 11 and 12 and Balak so he puts that, that, that first time he tries to put a curse on them instead of cursing them he gives a blessing and verse 11, Balak says to Balaam, "What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them." And Balaam answered, "Must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth?" And so he goes to work a second time, and Balaam takes them to a different place, and they go through their, their escapade of coming up with this, conjuring up a, a curse, and look down to verse uh, 25 and 26. Numbers chapter 23 verses 25 and 26. Then Balaam, then Balak said to Balaam, again, the same thing happened. Instead of a curse, there was a blessing. And Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them all, neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. If you're not going to curse them, then don't bless them. And Balaam answered, Did I not tell you? I must do whatever the Lord says. And so they take him to another place. And this time it's like he it took him to the mountain. He says, Don't look at the people, just curse them. And so he goes to this place and he tries to uh, give a, uh, put a curse on, the, on them. And go down to chapter 24. No, chapter 24. Uh, let's see. I'm out of place in my notes here. I don't know. Okay, let me just uh, figure out where I'm at in my notes. Uh, so chapter 24. Uh, I'll just try to find it. I think I skipped something in my notes here. Um, <clears throat> okay, verse 10 and 11. Uh, chapter 24, verses 10 and 11. Again, same thing happened. Instead of a curse, there was a blessing. And so verse 10, Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to them, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being reward rewarded. He's blaming God for, says, look, at, okay, you're gonna say you're gonna do whatever God wants and God's keeping you from getting paid, so just go home. And then chapter 24, we get four more Blessings instead of curses. And I want you to notice what happens there in chapter 25. Because I think this now begins to give us a key to what Judas is getting to in Jude 11. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal, of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. You say, well, what happened? If Balaam was only blessing God's people, if Balak sent him home, what happened? Why did all of a sudden the Israelites begin to consort with the Moabite women in an immoral way and begin to pledge themselves to the false gods of The Moabites, what happened? Turn over from Numbers 25 to Numbers chapter 31. I may have that verse, I I don't think I have that verse. Numbers 31, uh, verse 16, I think we get a key here of what's happening. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. And then we'll try to get to the point of the application here. Verse 16, Numbers chapter 31, verse 16. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Do you see what happened? Instead of being able to curse God's people, Balaam counseled Balak and he was paid. And what was his counsel? His counsel was entice the men of Israel with the women of Moab and they will embrace idolatry. I can't curse them, but if you lead them into sin, God will judge them. Entice them with immorality, lead them into idolatry. They'll come under the judgment of God. Now, that's a brilliant strategy if you want to sell your soul to the devil. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. 1,500 years after the Balaam incident in the wilderness, the error of Balaam is alive and well. Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 says, but I have a few things against you. This is to the church of Pergamum. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Do You see what God's doing? God is going all the way back and he says, listen, there's the twin enticements that the devil uses to lead God's people astray, immorality, idolatry. Immorality, idolatry. The error of Balaam leads to the defilement of God's people. It leads to a a lifestyle of decadence, of rampant immorality, lewd behavior. Anything goes, it doesn't matter what you do as long as it seems right to you. It's only a little thing, it's only a one night stand. Um, we love each other, it feels so good. How could this be wrong? This is the error, uh, the enticement of Balaam. And so God is speaking through Jude and he says, beware, woe to them, those who seek to entice God's people to lead them away through any form of immorality because that will lead ultimately to idolatry, worshiping someone other than the true Lord God, Jesus Christ. And so this is the warning that God is giving to the church. And it's not just Jude, Uh, Paul to the Corinthians. He said, run away from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits outside the body Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. On the contrary, the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. This is the call upon God's people. That we not be enticed by the things and the ways of this world. That we remain true, devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Colossians, the Apostle Paul would write, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your worldly nature. Now listen to the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The error of Balaam will lead to a lifestyle of defilement and God says, woe to them. Number three, the third example is the rebellion of Korah. The rebellion of Korah results in a spirit of defiance. You say, what is the rebellion of Korah? If you have your place in the book of Numbers, go back to Numbers chapter 16. Uh, Just wanna just make a quick point here. Again, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They've been delivered out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness wandering um, because of their unbelief. In verse sixteen, chapter sixteen, verse one, uh, God's word speaks of Korah, Korah, son of Itzar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and the son and On, son of Peleth, became insolent. Now that's the key word. They became insolent. They became disrespectful. They became unruly. They became rude. They 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 put down the Moses and Aaron as the as the leaders of God's people and they rose up against Moses. Now look what it says. And with them, 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. And they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, the whole community is holy. Every one of them and the Lord is with them. Every one of them and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself up above the Lord's assembly? So here's the, here's the issue in a nutshell. Korah, uh, Korah says, listen, Who made you the leader over God's people, Moses and Aaron? All of us are holy. We can come to God on our own. We don't have to come to God through you. Moses was distraught by what he heard. He fell on his face. And he spoke to them and he said, don't do this. And they said, we're gonna do our own thing. And and so Moses said, okay. Tomorrow you come before the temple of God, all 250 of you, you bring your censers, you bring your fire, you offer it on the altar of God, and we'll see who God accepts. And Moses spoke to the people and he says, listen, if, if, if I've gone too far and I'm standing in the way of you coming to God, then, then uh, if these men die of natural death, they, they live to an old age and they die of natural death, then you know that I've gone too far, but if God does something supernatural... If the earth swallows them up alive, then you'll know that these men are, are, are coming against God's anointed. And what happened when they offered their fire? The earth swallowed them up, all 250 of them. God said to them, He said, take that gold from their censers and melt it down and cover the altar so it'll be a perpetual reminder. And look what it says in verse 41. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron and you have killed the Lord's people, they said. Remember what I said about the grumbling there in verse 15 of Jude? It's the spirit of rebellion begins to manifest itself in grumbling. And the Lord's hand was stirred against his people. Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, go into the tabernacle, make intercession, make atonement for them, for the wrath has come from the Lord and the plague has started. And Aaron did that and he made atonement for the people, for their grumbling. And look what it says, verse verse 49. But but 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who died because of Korah. This rebellion, this spirit of rebellion says, I, I don't have to follow God's plan. The spirit of rebellion says, I don't have to, I can approach God in however I want to. I don't have to go through God's appointed means. Our, our appointed means is not through Moses, but through Jesus Christ. The spirit of rebellion says, I don't have to follow God in his word. That's what Jude is warning in verse 11. He says that, woe to them, because they have perished, Past tense as if it's already done in the rebellion of Korah. So much more that we can say. Let me just, uh, let me just try to wrap this up here. Let me bring some application to this, okay? You guys good? Couple more minutes, we'll be done. Ten more minutes, we'll be done. So there has to be a better way, right? The Lord says, learn from the past so that you don't repeat the past. So what is it that we're to learn from these three examples? And so this week as I was studying there are two thoughts that the Lord just really impressed I I believe the Lord has impressed upon me strongly. And I just I want to share them with you this morning. The first thought is this because God is holy. Because God is holy and especially the story of Korah. Uh, just the whole and, and the story of Balaam as well. Uh, the holiness of God just comes out of the story. If you read these chapters, because God is holy, his ways, his ways as revealed in his word, his will as revealed by his word must be obeyed. I think that's what Jude is telling the church. Listen. You're not free to go your own way. You're not free to make up the rules as you see fit. You're not free to determine what is right and wrong. God is holy. He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, recorded in the pages of Scripture. You must follow this book. That's what God is saying to us in this book, in in this verse, Jude 11. Uh, Look over to Psalm, Psalm chapter 32. I just want to read of this verse, and then we'll move to the second point. Uh, Psalm chapter 32, verses eight through 10. Listen to what the Lord says. Lord says in verse eight, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be, do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love, his loving kindness, his mercy surrounds the one who trusts in him. And that trust is going to be reflected in a lifestyle of submission to God and to his word, to his will and to his way. That's how we're to respond to who God is. Because he is holy, his will and his way, or it must, his word, his ways is, is revealed in his word and his will must be obeyed. The second thought that, I, that the Lord impressed upon me is this. Because your life will be poured out. Remember what I said about Balaam? They, they abandoned themselves. They poured themselves out for the error of Balaam. Or, or, or for profit. Because your life will be poured out. Pour your life out for the kingdom. For the rule and for the reign of God. And so turn with me over to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22. I want to read just a couple verses and then just uh, Luke chapter 12, not 22, Luke chapter 12. Uh, I just want us to hear what the Lord says. There's just a verse here that God has just just brought to my mind this week. And just verse 22, we know this from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Where Jesus says to his disciples, he says, don't worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your food. Don't worry about your clothing, what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. He says, can you add anything? Can you add a a, a cubit to your lifespan? If you can't do that, why do you worry about the rest? And then he gives us the illustrations. He says, consider the flowers of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Don't worry Verse 31 Seek first the kingdom of God, and these things will be given to you as well. Verse 32, Luke chapter 22, or Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Do not be afraid. Listen to what Jesus says, little flock. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has been pleased. To give you the kingdom. So if the kingdom is yours. What are you supposed to do? Worry about everything? Hoard everything? Run after things for profit? Sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near. nor moth, nor, And no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. (laughs) Pour your life out for the kingdom of God. It has pleased the Father to give you his kingdom. If that's what you have, don't chase the, the enticements of this world thinking if I have a little bit of this, my life will be a whole lot better. Pour yourself out for the kingdom of God. Give yourself to the things of God. Not just on Sunday morning when you're gathered for worship, but begin to see every day as an opportunity. Pour your life out for the kingdom of God. Your job is not a place just to earn an income so you can have a bigger house, drive a nicer car, take more exotic vacations. No, your job is God's opportunity in your life for you to pour out your life for the kingdom, for you to be God's witness in that workplace. Pour out your life out for the kingdom. Give yourself to, to those who have yet to hear of Jesus Christ. We think of the refugees coming across our border, the refugees coming into our country from Afghanistan. Why not partner with ministries and organizations that are reaching these people who've come from faraway places who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Pour yourself out for the kingdom of God. We think of the opportunity we have in Saginaw here at Remington Point. Pour yourself out for the kingdom of God and say, Make yourself available. Say, I'm giving myself to the Lord for the things that, that matter the most. Woe to them. It will be a disastrous day for them if they do not repent. For they have gone the way of Cain. Imagining that they can go through life without faith in the true God. Woe to them. For they have abandoned themselves to the error, to the deception of Balaam for profit thinking that there was advantage by going contrary to God. Woe to them. For they have perished in the rebellion of Korah, imagining they didn't have to submit to the Lord and follow his way.